Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Susan Phillips returns to the program. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis is showing Susan Phillips' Seven Tears, a survey selected and installed in response to the Pulitzer's building and site. It includes work the Pulitzer commissioned for its Tato Ando design building, Too Much I Once Lamented. The exhibition is on view through February 2nd, 2020. It was curated by Stephanie Weisberg. Phillips is a Turner Prize-winning artist whose work typically uses sound, often featuring Phillips' own voice, to address architecture and location. Some of her recent exhibitions have been at the Tanks at the Tate Modern in London, at the Heldenplatz in Vienna, the Baltic Center for Contemporary Art in Gateshead, England, the Scottish National Galleries, the Kunsthaus Bregenz, and more. On the second segment, art historian Matthew Sims on Robert Irwin at Chinati Foundation. But first, Susan Phillips, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents the exhibition Icons of Style, A Century of Fashion Photography, showcasing the industry's rich and varied history through more than 200 photographs by famous practitioners and lesser-known yet influential artists. From elegant 20th century portraits to the trend-setting fashions of Beyonce, David Bowie, Audrey Hepburn, Run DMC, and more, this broad and diverse perspective on fashion traces its trajectory from niche industry to powerful cultural force on view through September 22nd. Visit mfah.org icons for more. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon Treasures, a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Kay Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Experience Theater Under the Stars at the Getty Villa this September. This year's outdoor production is The Heel, a bold new version of Sophocles' timeless tale directed by Aaron Posner and co-produced by Maryland's Roundhouse Theater. Posner creates an irreverent, spiritual, musical exploration about the wounds we carry, the ones we cause, and the redeeming power of human connection. Performances begin September 5th and run through September 28th. Learn more and get tickets at getty.edu 360. With the fall exhibition season about to begin, I'm thrilled to announce two upcoming live audience Modern Art Notes podcast tapings. First up is a program with the artist Tiffany Chung at the Sheldon Museum of Art in Lincoln, Nebraska. Chung is one of three artists in the Sheldon's ongoing exhibition Unquiet Harmony, the Subject of Displacement, a show which examines how artists have engaged with issues surrounding migration. We'll be taping at the museum on Wednesday, September 25th at 5.30 p.m. Then on Tuesday, October 15th, I'll be at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth to talk with Robin O'Neill about We the Masses, a survey of O'Neill's 20 years of art making that opens at the Modern that week. Our conversation will begin at 7 p.m. Hope to see you all there. And if anyone comes to both tapings in Lincoln and Fort Worth, let me know and we'll be sure to come up with some kind of prize.
And we're back. Susan Phillips, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, it's nice to be back. Let's start with the new piece, the commission for the Pulitzer, of which, from which we just heard a clip, uh, is called Too Much I Once Lamented. It is a madrigal, which is a composition that overlays multiple multiple voices in harmony. And this one uses a is from a 1622 song of the same title by Welsh composer Thomas Tompkins, and it describes a heartbroken lover reflecting on loss. Could you give us, before we kind of talk more about the work, a, a quick rundown on how you adapted and interpreted Tompkins's piece for use at the Pulitzer? Yeah, well, that magical really is about unrequited love and and it's very typical of the time you know all the songs that were written during that time were all they were all doing melancholy and you know unlike John Dowland he 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 did that very well and, and the reason I chose that is because it deals with these themes of, of lament and the whole exhibition is is a lament you know and dealing with these themes of of loss and absence and so I recorded all of the voices, the, the two sopranos, the tenor, uh, the alto and the bass, <laughs> all with my own voice. And, you know, I, I, I'm clearly, clearly not a trained singer. And I installed them in this water court, which is like that really beautiful feature of the, the museum. So I was, I, I was interested in how the sound dealt with the architecture and the acoustics in that space and the calling of the voices across the water. And it's a, it did something with the scale of the space that I find interesting because the water, it, sort of, it brings your, draws your eye out into the, into the space and, you know, it has this infinity, the feeling of, of an infinity pool. But then, so it has a, each of the voices, because they're separated, you know, you have this intimacy, but also this feeling of immensity in the space. So it's sort of, sort of plays with the scale of the space in a way that I, you know, I found I was very happy to experience when we installed it. But yeah, so, so it, it, the, all, of the, all of the works kind of deal with these themes of absence and loss, as I said, but there's, and, and, and are connected with uh, water, tears, you know. So starting with the entrance, with the river cycle, through to the seven tears in the main space, and then... So that's the main thing that flows through the whole exhibition. Why why loss? Why tears? Why is that something you wanted to address, make work around now? I suppose when I first came to St. Louis, we were brought on a tour and we went to the Mississippi, of course, which and the Mississippi and the Missouri, this confluence of both rivers. So for me, it's, it's a very strong, you know, it's a brilliant, revolves around the, the river, you know, it's, um, and so water, this, this theme of, 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 of water, you know, really stayed with me in, in the first trip. So I started to think about working with works that would work well together in the space acoustically, but also thematically, you know, and I thought Seven Tears would work with the main space very well and with the light, with the, with the acoustics, you know, because you really have to think of how the works work together, as you know, you know, so, so it's not going to be a cacophony of, of sound. And so I felt that this, the, the work Seven Tears, which is the, the work that's on seven um, turntables, would 
work very well with the new commission to work in the courtyard, which is, or in the water court, sorry, next, very close to that, you know. So, so I really had to think how, how they would all work together. And, and I know that work, you know, it has a kind of a ethereal crystalline quality to it that, it, you know, it's where I've taken each of the seven tones of the, of the lacrimae by John Dowland and, and recorded them on, by rubbing out the rim of a wine glass. You know, the water level determines the pitch. So, you know, I could make seven tones from these seven glasses and then transpose the recordings onto vinyl record, clear vinyl record. So when they rotate, when they're turning, you know, it's echoed in the rotation of the finger that was needed to, my own finger, to create the sound. So, so it kind of looks like when, when everything's on, it looks like pools of water. So, so I thought that connected well with the too much I once lamented. I mean, it's a work that I, I made previously, uh, the seven years, but then, so then that leads to together and then finally to White Flood, which I don't know how much you know about that work, but I mean, when the frontier film they made it in the 50s it's a nature film you know and it's, it's basically about the life and death of a glacier but when you see it now you know you really see it as a comment on climate change it was like uh and especially you know when you go through the exhibition it sort of really do, does color your perception of, of of the work um which is the last work you see in in the show and you know floods and and the, the glaciers melting that you can't help but read it like that it's like almost like a premonition you know because they they didn't know about climate change then you know so you mentioned seven tears we'll come back to that in a moment as we heard in the clip of too much i once lamented we hear you breathe we hear these interruptions of the harmony i'm probably using the wrong word of, of an acute present physically palpable breath every once in a while and and it interrupts kind of the seamlessness of of the voices how does that conscious inclusion of your breathing in the piece both relate to the madrigal tradition and how do you intend it for it to be present or felt here well i wanted the the human presence to be felt i mean with the madrigal like as you said it's what would you speak like an angelic uh, voices that they're not, not not human in fact so that they wanted to create this feeling of uh, that they didn't have to breathe they didn't have to draw breath but I, you know like in, like in many of my works where I work with my own voice I want to I want the listener to to think that you know that it could be anyone's voice and you can identify everyone can identify with the human voice so when you so when you when you hear each of the voices do you think of them individually not not only as a whole you know so when you're standing closer to one speaker I mean you're really immersed in the sound because it's also from behind you so you hear quite intimately the the, the voices you know you're close to the voices but at the same time they, they come together in harmony it's a very intricate harmony I wanted to try and make it sound like it was like you might just sing it if you were singing by yourself which is which is uh, not not easy to do with such a complex harmony, but um, yeah. So, like for instance, in the when you enter the space, the first thing you encounter is a work that I made called River River Cycle, where I've taken this song by Radiohead, 
which is it starts with I jumped in the river. What do I see? Black and white angels swam with me. And but again, it's clearly not a trained voice. It's an unaccompanied voice, very paired back, keeping as as true to the original composition as I can. There's but there's no instrumentation, so it's bare and. And because of that, it sounds, I suppose, quite exposed, you know, out there and through this public address system singing in a way that suggests solitude, you know. So so I'm interested in that aspect of, of the voice and how when you when you can, you know, when I've worked with public address systems through supermar- in supermarkets, for instance, or how there's kind of creates this, uh, this, this very intimate feeling in the very public context, you know, and, just the tension that can create. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I've always been interested in, in the psychological and uh, emotive effects of, of sound, but song in particular, you know, from early on, and how that can be a trigger for memory. And but yeah, I suppose song, working with sound and working with public space came together simultaneously when I start, first started out. So we're speaking before the show is opened, and I have only heard too much. I once lamented as an MP3 file. But I hear the breaths in the piece like fractures amid harmony. This is, of course, in fact, on this very day we're taping a moment of profound division in both the United States and in the UK, which is having all sorts of drama in Parliament almost exactly yeah, <laughs> when <gosh>. we're taping. <laughs> it's just unbelievable what's going on all at once, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, this is inescapably a moment when political parties in both the UK and the United States have played to the most extreme members of their political bases for their electoral success, and at least in the, in the, in, in the US as, as, as a claim of their legitimacy. Is too much I once lamented an address of those fractures? Well, no, not directly, but of course I, I can understand why people might read that into the works because, yeah, it is a, a moment where there are there's a lot of things to lament about, you know. So, yeah, I mean, like like you say with the white, white flood, it was never their intention to make a comment on climate change because it was way before it, it, its time, but they were... It, but you can't help but read it like that. It's just incredible, the, the, the film that they made, you know, of this dying glacier, you know. So, yeah, well, it's not, not directly making a comment on the political situation, but, of course, I'm very aware of it. And Since we uh, last talked, and I should have here in my notes what year that was, but I don't, I think it was 2013. Since then, you've made a couple works, quite a number of works, out of war-damaged material, if you will. Who by Fire, uh, which was installed in Malta and makes use of a bell and a tradition of bell ringing, and War-Damaged Musical Instruments, which has been a kind of an ongoing, air quotes, series that you've revisited in a couple of places or that you've continued in a couple of places. I'm sure you didn't make two works engaging World War II without being well aware you were making two works that engaged World War II. <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you talking about document, my document work, Study for Strings? Or, because well, war damaged musical instruments, is, they're, they're from lots of different wars, but um, there are some instruments that were from a bunker in World War II, but mostly they're, they were civilian ones, but mostly they're from... 
uh, military horns from different wars. If I had to choose one more, it would be World War One. So to modify the question slightly, I mean, these are all works that deal with really big, broad wars. And I'm sure you were well aware that you were making works that were addressing these cataclysmic global events. Were you happy for those works to be primarily about those his- those histories? Or were you thinking through something about the then present or, or, or the effects of those wars? Well, I was thinking what would happen if you breathed life back into the instruments, if you could if they would produce sound. Then that's really how I first came to, to work with them. And I saw one exhibited in a, a vitrine in the Musical Instrument Museum in Berlin. You know, they were very badly damaged, but I just thought, well, what would happen if you if you tried to make a sound with them? I mean, clearly they wouldn't create music, but so it was more sort of bringing life back to the instrument. And yeah, and those particular instruments in Berlin were, um, civilian instruments that were damaged in the bunker. But when I did find others, there were mainly military ones from different wars, like from the Boer War, from the Battle of Waterloo, and the one from the, um, the Balaclava Bugle from the Charge of the Light Brigade. You know, I had got access to such incredible horns, you know, and but it took a long time to find them because Mostly people don't keep broken instruments or they repair them or they throw them out. But then finally I did find, I found some, but it took me years, literally. And then, and then the stories behind them, you know, some, some, you know, one, the first one that I recorded had a bullet hole through it, but it was a, it was a, a bugle, but we didn't know who owned the bugle. We just knew that it was found, it was, it was damaged in war time. Uh, First World War, because when they they actually used uh, bugles on on the battlefield, you know, because it's to indicate certain things, you know, that's why mostly they were military, you know, like advance, retreat. But the most famous one, you know, is the last post, which is still used in funerals, military funerals today. And I mean, everybody's familiar with that one. So that's the one I chose for the work where I got all of the, got each of the musicians who worked with these horns to play the four tones that make up the last post and and try and get them through these instruments that that I found in the ar- different archives all over Germany and Britain. So it's fascinating, you know, to get access to these archives. But of course, we had to go to the horns. We wouldn't, you know, allow, especially in Germany, they're very precious with them, you know. Dealing with had to wear white gloves and I saw you know, that. Tight. yeah, so it was just uh, yeah. But uh, in in Britain, it was more they were more uh, relaxed. <laughs> There's great video um, both of war damaged musical instruments installed at at Tate, and of forgive the phrase the making of the of the of the piece. And so we will have we will embed some of that video on on, on manpodcast.com. Actually, right here, before I ask my next question, let's drop in a clip from War Damaged Musical Instruments.
That was War Damaged Musical Instruments. A number of times when speaking about that work, you've talked about how while the instruments you used in it couldn't produce music anymore, they could still produce sound, which is an interesting and understandable distinction. Why is it a distinction that is important to you? What about that that kind of liminal space between music and sound interests you? Yeah, well, when you separate all of the tones, you really focus on the physicality of producing the sound, the, the effort that it takes to 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 get this, when it, it has a gaping hole in it, you know, it's really difficult. Yeah, it takes a lot more breath. So the emphasis is really on on the human breath, you know, that you really hear that in the recordings. And so, you know, breath is a metaphor for, for life and mortality, you know, so you, you, you really, so you really feel the presence of the, the person in the recording. So I think that is an important aspect of, of that work, but also of, of many of my works where I use my own voice or work with other musicians. Yeah. Breaking down, breaking it down and then putting it back together again, you know, but focusing on the, the, the sound that it can make rather than the composition as a whole. One of the, the, the videos that uh, we have up on manpodcast.com will be War Damaged Musical Instruments at, at Tate. And so people can, you know, obviously without being there, you know, get some idea of how the work existed in a very particular space, a very particular kind of building. The work at the Pulitzer um, exists in a completely different kind of building, a completely different kind of space. And, and, I, and I know that from having both talked to you before in 2013 and, 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 and read up on you, that these spaces are really important to you, that when you fulfill a commission or even install a previous work in a new space, that you do a site visit, you consider acoustics and atmosphere and even the history of the place and the site site itself. So, so in, in that vein, I'd like to talk about I See a Darkness, which was a 2008 piece that you installed in Tanks at the Tate in London earlier this year. Well, you're my friend, that's what you told me, and can you see what's inside of me? Many times we've been a-drinking, many times we've shared our thoughts. But did you ever, ever notice the kind of thoughts I've got? Well, you know I have a love, a love for everyone I know. And you know I have a drive To live I won't let go Can you see this opposition Comes rising up sometimes This dreadful imposition Comes blocking in my mind And then I see a darkness, and then I see a darkness, and then I see a darkness, and then I see a darkness. 
Did you know how much I love you? There's a hope that somehow you can save me from this darkness. For an American or a mostly American audience, could you maybe quickly tell us what that space is and is like? Yeah, well, I was so happy to show I See a Darkness in that space. It was a work that Tate Britain collected, but in fact, they wanted to show it in the Devine Galleries, which is where I, sh I showed uh, War Damaged Musical Instruments eventually. But I knew it wouldn't work there. It was, the space was way too big, it was way too bright, it had to be a dark space. So I proposed War Damaged Musical in Instruments, which I felt worked perfectly in that long space and with that acoustic. So they, they didn't show it then for 10 years, I See a Darkness. And, but when they proposed the tanks, I thought, or one of the tanks, I thought this is a perfect space. I mean, acoustically, it's really challenging. I mean, it, it, because it's a, a metal drum that used to, I mean, it was, a, it was a tank, an oil tank, you know, huge oil tank. It, the acoustics are very, there's a very, very long reverberation time. So the echo is off the charts, you know, when you, when you, when you speak, it's just, it, so it's very, it's problematic for, for the Tate, you know, to show anything that has sound. And they didn't even, even want to suggest it at first because they thought I would immediately say absolutely no. But for me, it was perfect because what I could do is I, I gave the work a new lease of life by creating a whispering gallery with, 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 the, with the work. You know, there's a there's a part. Uh, there's three parts to the to the installation, and the first part it starts with uh, two voices, my own voices, like a um, call and response, and I installed them on on the on the wall so that the sound travelled around the wall, and it became so intimate. So even though you have this crazy acoustic in the space, when you stand closer to the wall, you, you hear it's perfectly clear and intimate you know the, and the voice is it's really uncanny how, how this whispering gallery works you know you've I'm sure you, you know you've experienced it in you know Grand Central Station or the famous one in London in St Paul's Cathedral you know so yeah so it just seemed like the voice was kind of it's it just a completely disembodied spectral voice uh, which really added to the experience of the work, which is about Santa Lucia and, and Lucia Joyce and her, the two Lucias. And she was James Joyce's daughter who was a dancer and she, she was a very promising dancer, but then sadly became um, unstable after traveling around with her father. She became more and more depressed, which led to a psychosis, which led to mental being incarcerated in mental institutions for the rest of her life you know so it's a very sad uh, story but she was an incredible um, dancer so I see a darkness it really you know it's almost like she becomes the character of the song which is the Will Oldham song uh, Bonnie Prince Billy song that I'm sure you you know he's he's a wonderful songwriter and he was very happy for me to use his, his song when I when I explained my concept, he was yeah. But unfortunately, he couldn't come to the opening because he had a he just had a baby. So at that time, so yeah, so so yeah, so I was really really happy with how it worked in that space, you know. And it really felt like it was made for that space, the work. 
uh, you know, and then then there's a piano part, and then it goes into chorus of voices. So it's it, but acoustically it worked perfectly, and it was in the right scale. Everything was was just right. <laughs> I'm I'm interested in how you use echo. So we were talking before about how breath and breathing often in your work a metaphor for for life. Is there a way you think of echo metaphorically or is there a specific way in which you think about whether to use it or or embrace it or not for that matter? Yeah, I think well echo creates a sort of disembodied or distant distance, you know, the I mean, sometimes, if, especially with voice, an echo can give it too much of an ethereal kind of a choir, like, for, and, I, and I don't, I don't want that, you know, to feel like I, I, you know, when I work with my voice, I like to keep it dry, you know, so, but sometimes the echo can really work with, with, when it was, this, when I created the Whispering Gallery, so it wasn't a, the echo, it was more the, the shape of the space that created the, that got rid of the echo, even though it's a very echoey space, you know. Yeah, but friends, but where I really did work with the echo was in um, Bregen's Kunsthaus. That that is just that's an amazing space. Uh, Peter Zumthor, he was the architect. It's flooded with incredible light. All, each of the four floors are, are identical. He was inspired by the fog that comes off the lake. And so it's just got this amazing, it's like you're in the cloud, you know, when you go through it, but the acoustics are impossible, you know. So I, I really had to consider that when I was asked to do a show there. And in the end, what I, had, what I did was make a, a work that, one work that basically filled the entire museum. I mean, each floor, I separate, I worked with this composition again by Eisler and took four voices from this composition and had a different voice, when I say voice instrument, on each floor. But because of the acoustics, you could hear the violin from the ground floor. The violin was on the top floor. So so the whole building was resounding with sound, but it, because of the separation, there was this distance that I liked, you know, that you could hear something from far away. So, yeah, so in that case, you have to give it a lot of space, you know, for it for it to work and... and uh, and, but mainly I was working with wind instruments. I think that can it really lends itself well to when you work with acoustics, you know, wind instruments. Is, so I worked with uh, three, three wind instruments from the composition. A fourth one out in the cemetery, which the Jewish cemetery, which was in synchronization with the, the other four voices in the museum. So, yeah, so it worked out. I think it worked really well, but I really had to make a work especially for that space and with the acoustics in mind to really harness the acoustics and get them to work for me uh, instead of against me. You mentioned Hans Eisler again. Eisler's work is, forgive my phrasing, in White Flood, a part of White Flood within White Flood. I'm not sure what the proper preposition to use is. Yeah, well, Eisler, he he did the score for White Flood. He was he was looking to to a score for a, a film, and and you know he he knew those frontier film collective and they were also very left-leaning like himself so yeah let me let me fill that in for just a second eisler was was german um he left germany in 41 or 42 to move to california 
and he had a brief Hollywood career before being before having his career effectively ended by the witch hunting House Un American Activities Committee in in the late 1940s. That's right. Yeah, poor Eisler. First he had to escape the Nazis, and then he's the very first guy to be brought up in front of the House of Un-American Activities. So you seem, you, you seem quite fond of Eisler, I must say. I mean, he must really, I don't know if it's the music or his biography, but... Yeah, well, you know, I was, I was interested in working with a 12-tone composer from doing the exhibition in the Hamburger Bahnhof, and, but I hadn't settled on Eisler. I mean, for, he's more known for his uh, political songs, and that's not really what I was interested in at that point. So I was looking at Schoenberg, I was looking at other, the more known 12-tone composers. until. But then when I came across Eisler, his story is so interesting. And, you know, he collaborated with, well, for his whole adult life, Bertolt Brecht until he died. And, you know, he wrote a book with Theodore Adorno. He did a, he worked with Charlie Chaplin. You know, he's he's just such an incredible, but then he's, he's not really that known, you know, so I, I think because he was blacklisted and also then he became blacklisted again when he went back to Germany because he became a GDR composer, you know, you know, so he, it was, a, it was a shame, you know, but in a way he didn't really have a choice, you know, when he, when he went back, you know, under Stalin and everything. So, yeah, so he, he had a, a hard time, but, but his music is wonderful and, and his, his, his biography is really fascinating and, so, so the so the compositions that I worked with by Eisler, by by breaking them down and recording them each tone separately, each of the twelve tones separately, those themes that run through the exhibition of displacement and separation and movement, these are, these are themes you know that come from from his life as well because he, you know, he was displaced and he was, you know, he he was separated, you know, having to flee Germany and then. So, so yeah, so it's also in the physical making of the work, the, you know, saying something about him, but also in the physical making of the work, each of the, each of the tones are separated. So, so, yeah, that's why I became really fascinated by Eisler. Yeah, and the fact that he wanted to write film scores. So I only cho- I chose these film scores. I mean, he, he embraced his life in Hollywood. And, you know, he I mean, of course, he did some weren't all the best things, but, you know, but he did some really interesting things. I mean, Hollywood exploded with incredible talent at that time from the emigres who flooded there during the war, you know, such a a fascinating period. You know, that that reminds me, that's another work in which you're sort of addressing a World War II history. And, and, you know, one we haven't talked about uh, is the piece you did in Vienna for the balcony from which Hitler addressed uh, an Austrian crowd in March of 1938, which is also very much World War II, you know, if not a few months before, referencing peace. And I don't mean this to be a flip question, but I'm a little worried that it will sound flip, so I'm going out of my way to say it's not a flip question. Is there something about moments of a people's or a government's catastrophic failure or inhumanity or of historical disaster that appeals to you or that you think is think fits what you want to address no it, it, i mean it may seem like i'm a sort of a, a holocaust fanatic or something it's not i'm not it's just the way it worked out you know i did the documentary work song for strings yeah study for strings and then 
yeah, sound strings and sort of led to, you know, the research I did for that project led to the project I did for Park Frail's score in Hamburg Bahnhof. So I think just the reason I was asked is because I had touched on, I had, you know, touched on those themes before. But, you know, I when I first considered it, initially the first time I, I, I went there, I feel like, was study for strings, being on the on the, on the at the end of the platform, looking out into the hills. End of a train, end of a train station platform. End of the yeah, the train station in, in Castle, where where Documenta happens. You know, it happens every five years. But I didn't really know the city at all, and I was really finding it hard to find anything that was was inspiring me at all. It was, it was you know, but then the train station it had an atmosphere, like it was like the 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 terminus but had formerly been the main station and I could hear the birds sing see the see the hills I then imagine the sound a sound sounds coming from a distance you know and that I could install speakers out in the landscape and you were supposed to experience it from really far away so then I thought okay that's what I would do but then I realized that it's it was it was just if you scratch the surface it, it's just it was horrific what what happened, you know, the documentation that I found of, of this train station covered in huge banners with swastikas and, and it's where they deportate, made the major deportations of the Jews to to the concentration camps, one being Treisenstadt. And, and I, I knew about Treisenstadt because I'd read about it in Sabolt's Austerlitz's book, uh, this novel uh, where he's trying to find his his mother, who was an opera singer, and Chasenstadt was the camp where they did send, like, many of the, the musicians and writers and 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 uh, artists, you know. So, so I, I knew about Chasenstadt. I'd read about it, and and so that's how I thought, okay, well, this could be something. I'd already decided on the site, but then I thought, well, do I really want to go into the Holocaust? I mean, that's that's, that's such a huge. Um, subject to take on you know but you couldn't get away from it the whole city was bombed to bits because of the Henschel and Sons uh, factory that was building the, the tank the Tiger 1 and Tiger 2 tanks I mean if you were to follow the train tracks around you would come to the you know to the to the, that huge factory that originally built trains but then it became so it became a target that's why the city was so ugly and I couldn't find anything to show so in the end I thought okay this Treasonstadt, which led me to Pavel Haas, which led me to his composition that he wrote while he was interned in the camp, study for strings and and so on. So yeah, but I didn't I didn't think, okay, I want to make work about Second World War because Castle was so heavily bombed in the war or anything. It just sort of happened that way. And then the phone started ringing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the yeah the phone started ringing. The Vienna work, that was a bit like, oh, no, I don't know if I can really, I, I didn't, wasn't sure about it. It was a huge ask, you know, to do, to, to do a work that would commemorate the Anschluss, the annexation, you know. I, to, I was a bit afraid to do it. I took a lot of persuading from from Kasper Koenig and Thomas Trummer the, and, and, the, and the director of the, the museum there to for me to do it, you know, so... One of the things I came to think about in preparing to talk to you 
is that over the last 15 or so years, you've, you know, accepting historians, you've probably made as much work about World War II in particular, but both world wars, as as anybody in the creative fields, whether that be composing or writing novels or making art or, or what have you. Do you think you have accrued particular knowledge or come to understand certain things about that period through having made so much work around and about it? Yeah, well, of course. I mean, I have the more you know, research I've done into these composers and the emigres and yeah, the film, the propaganda movie that was shot of Study for Strings in the yeah. So you, yeah, over time I've I've become you know gotten to know more and more about the people who were affected and yeah. I mean, of course, and I live in I live in Berlin, so it's 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 all it's there still really present. You know, you can't help but be aware of it. You know, the history is so. Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, the Weimar—it's all there. You can't—you can't get away from it. You know, it's, it's been—it's definitely been a place to, that has inspired work for me, Berlin. Switching gears a bit, you grew up in a devoutly Catholic, capital C Catholic family. I, I've read that you all used to do the rosary together as a family in the evening. So, was being in a militant socialist African choir as you as you also were as a teenager. Um, more... <laughs> that was me rebelling against it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Does that experience live in the work more than Catholicism, do you think? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, but even then, you know, it's, I mean, in my, my work, I, I have done, I suppose, quite a lot of political works, but so my interest in, say, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht or, or the into working with the Internationale comes from my early day, active days as a, in the fighting of poll tax and even minor strike when I was a teenager. I was, I was you know, so all of those things politicised me, you know, growing up in Britain at, 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 at that time in the 80s. I mean, you, you know, those things have come through in my work for sure. You know, the, the work I did for NCA. The last piece I wanted to ask about is Day is Done, which uh, is on Governor's Island in, in New York. Uh, let's hear a little bit of that here. That, that was Day is Done. Day is Done is a reference to the first lyric in the Bugle Call Taps, which is played at dusk and during flag ceremonies and at military funerals, at least in the United States it is. I don't know if Taps exists similarly or differently in, in other armed forces around the world. So I 
there are a couple pieces you have made that engage that that engage taps. Is there anything particular about that? I don't know if it's exactly a song. Is it a song? Do we call it a song? Do we call it a tune? Yeah, you can call it a song. A song. Is there something about that song in particular that interests you, or is it the symbolism of it? Well, yeah, the Governor's Island, you could actually hear the days done, or the taps from the mainland. You could hear it because it was formerly a, a military island, and they would... They would play that, you know, at the end of the close of day, you know. And so people still talk about that, you know, or I've heard stories like that. So that that influenced my decision to work with the taps, you know. And the taps, like you talked about earlier, is, is the most known uh, bugle call. You know, it's like one of the ones that, that stayed after the war, you know, the, the, the still no one uses bugles on that battlefield anymore, but that was the one that is the most familiar with, we're most familiar with, you know, it was the one to say, it's okay, you can come back in now from fighting, you know. It was, so, but it's funny, taps, you know, the word taps comes from uh, tap toe, and, and it's Dutch, meaning taps off, end of the, it, there's no more beer, switching the taps off. I felt that that was the right bugle call to work with for for that location, and again separating each of the tones, so it's not always in synchronisation. It sort of shifts about, um, but we're going to reinstall it in the a better look at the fortress there, Fort J. Fort J. We're going to, yeah. Fort J. We're going to re- reinstall it in Fort J uh, next year. So yeah, and I think it will work really well there. I'm excited to see that. I'm even going to bring some of my students over from Berlin for the to experience a site visit, sound test, and and then hopefully the opening will uh, happen while they're there. So you like both the history of the piece, its layered references, both in terms of where the word comes from, and I mean it, it's the it's the multiplicity of layers there that works for you then. Yeah, and I and I like that you know people can it's familiar but then it's unfamiliar when it's taken apart and it sort of seems to blow around in the wind there you know and then you know and the sound of the horns are reflected in the sound of the the horns that you you see on, on the water you know you're here on the water you know so sometimes i thought i was hearing the work when i was actually hearing a ship's horn yeah yeah it was it was funny because it they're so they're so separated to the each of the horns the other the other tone is very distant you know so uh, sometimes it was easy to 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 think you were hearing it when in fact it was actually a ship's horn <laughs> marvelous susan phillips thanks very much a pleasure The de Young Museum in San Francisco presents the first exhibition in the continental United States by multidisciplinary artist Lisa Rehana. Titled In Pursuit of Venus Infected, it features a 70-foot-long video scroll depicting live-action vignettes juxtaposed with the historic French wallpaper on which it is based. Rehana's work will prompt you to ask yourself who controls the narrative of history and how do images shape our understanding of that narrative. See In Pursuit of Venus Infected now until January 5th. Visit deyoungmuseum.org for details. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents More Like a Forest, Paintings and Sculptures by Richard Allen Morris at its downtown location through October 27th. This presentation, comprising a sculptural series from the artist's collection, 
as well as paintings drawn from the museum's own holdings, highlights Morris's ceaseless transformation of ordinary materials into extraordinary creations. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, art historian Matthew Sims. He has contributed to a new book, Robert Irwin, untitled Dawn to Dusk. It details the Chinati Foundation's 1999 to 2016 Irwin Commission of the same title. The book, especially Sims' essay, offers a history of the project and the phases, the many phases, through which it passed as it moved toward completion, as well as photographs of the work by Alex Marks. Amazon offers it for $57. Sims teaches art history at the California State University, Long Beach. Matthew Sims, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The final Irwin work in Marfa, the thing that is there now, features uh, black and white and shades in between. Um, but Irwin's first iteration of, of the concept for the thing, for the place, was in color. Why color? How would, how would color have worked there? When Bob originally was invited to come to Marfa by... Uh, Mariana Stockerbrand at that time, who was the uh, director of the Chinati Foundation, to visit this site, to look at the uh, old ruined hospital, which was not technically part of the uh, Chinati um, grounds at that time, but was eventually then uh, given. Um, he was struck by the way in which the this ruined uh, U-shaped building uh, was exposed to the elements. The, the roof was missing, the floor was also missing. So that meant that when you walked into the, uh, the kind of skeleton of the structure, you were sort of lower than um, the architects would have originally assumed so that the windows seemed artificially high. So, and that had the effect of just pitching your sort of gaze upwards as you looked up through these windows. And then up there, of course, you had the missing ceiling. And all of this um, framed the sky in fantastic ways. And in Marfa, um, in that part of West Texas, Irwin kind of uh, decided that the sky was the main event. And so how to find ways to use this structure to kind of or, or enhance what the structure was already doing, which was essentially framing, channeling, bringing in the, the sky, um, turning the sky into sort of that that uh, um, main event. And so his first idea, and it went through three different stages, the first idea was to, in fact, um, uh, work with that uh, sort of ruined structure, shored up in various ways by cutting the lengths of the long corridors into segments at about 23 foot intervals or so, and then putting these sort of right angled little uh, L-shaped wall uh, uh, additions to the walls that would stick in and would help support those walls. He was also going to put uh, sort of tilt up concrete inside, leaning up against the walls to sort of reinforce them and also dig down to put some pylons sort of underneath. So all of this was to try to maintain that structure and then add some additional elements. What he would have added would be uh, a sort of a running glass roof um, uh, on the uh, west side. It would have been in uh, sort of hues from kind of yellow to orange back to yellow, so it would modulate. And on, on the sort of east side, uh, you would have a kind of uh, uh, lighter to darker to lighter 
kind of violet into purple, back into violet. So that let me, um, let me just jump in for a quick second to say that the drawings for these uh, initial designs from two thousand uh, two and three um, are are in the book. Uh, they're at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, and we'll have them on manpodcast.com. Yes, absolutely, and they're wonderful drawings, and um, they they sort of capture this sense of how Irwin was going to try to still allow that 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 effect of having the sky enter the space be the main main uh, phenomenon in there, but also tweak it a little bit, change it a little bit um, by having it come through this tinted modulated color. So this was the first idea. You'd come in and and you'd still have the sky, but you'd have a glass kind of tinted roof. Then uh, as his idea uh, evolved and this project took over a decade to kind of work itself towards its final um, appearance, he, as he kind of changed his ideas, uh, he responded to uh, certain questions like costs or uh, weight, the weight of that glass roof. A range of things began to make it seem as though it might not be feasible. And then he turned to the notion of essentially turning these long corridors into enclosed tunnels, uh, sort of entirely closing them, except at those 20, roughly 26-foot intervals, which he was going to sort of keep as a way to kind of keep the shoring up of the building, he would then have glass bands going around the building. So the light would still be coming into the building, but now at 23-foot intervals coming through still tinted glass. He changed the notion a bit. You still have the violet, you still have the sort of orange, but now they were green also. Uh, there was green glass. So now the, the experience of going through would have felt more like going through a kind of concrete tunnel, but with these uh, air, this light kind of coming in at intervals. Finally, um, he abandoned all of these ideas and decided that what he wanted was to differentiate the building in terms of the east side being a dark uh, side with a black scrim running down it. And then on the right side, he would have uh, a, a sort of a white scrim running down the length um, and make um, uh, no intervention in terms of color. And it would simply be a tonal contrast between the dark sort of east side and the light um, uh, uh, west side. And in the sort of process of moving towards this final um, uh, decision here, there was also this momentous thing that happened, which was the decision was made to actually uh, knock down the, um, the existing building because it was just proving to be far too expensive and difficult to shore up that uh, ruin. Then it was to... We should emphasize that it was crumbling and there was no roof. <laughs> Exactly. Crumbling and no roof. And it was it would have been a dangerous place, I think, you know, if there had been and they were discovering other instabilities along the way. So they decided, look, we can let's rebuild this building. And this was a this was a major issue because Donald Judd, of course, whose you know, spirit is alive in Marfa and who's was uh, sort of the founder of the sort of Chinati Foundation. His idea about architecture is that you must you should work with what's already there rather than building new things on new plots of land that wind up um, sprawling and and ultimately um, um, destroying the environment his 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 ethic was to use what's already there so this is what Irwin was responding to and very much trying to come up with lots of different solutions to to respect that and 
at the same time, um, you know, sort of make a contribution by enhancing what was already happening in that building, bringing the light in, capturing it now in this last kind of version uh, on scrim panels that were running the length. As it turns out, the piece not only responds to uh, light over the course of, of the day from from just before sunrise to, to just after dusk, but it goes through seasonal... Uh, not adjustments, but 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 but, the, but within the work, the different seasons are are different. The light comes from different places. It has a different quality, uh, and whatnot. And that's reflected really in in the design of the book and in, in in how the the pictures are laid out and presented. How does how does how does that work, if you will? How does how does how did that idea get extended into the book? Well, this was something that was a wonderful surprise. Uh, you know, once the the um, piece was complete um, and uh, the opening ceremony had sort of the, the weekend had passed uh, and it kind of started its life as just another one of the, you know, sort of pieces at the Chinati Foundation. Only those who were there, uh, living there on a kind of uh, annual basis, um, including most importantly, Rob Wiener, who was in charge of, um, in many ways, um, bringing this whole project to completion and also um, sort of overseeing the design of the book, putting the book together. One of the things that he noticed was that it wasn't just that this building was channeling the light and, and, and accentuating the ways it changed across uh, a given day, but that also seasonally that light was also changing. And it had a lot to do with the fact that the sun was lower in the sky days were longer or shorter, the the sort of feel of the light changed from winter into spring and into into summer. So what Rob decided was that it, that it would be imperative to track those changes photographically in the best way possible, knowing, of course, that photography is, a, is of course, uh, not able to capture the full extent of all of that, but that somehow uh, in the book that should be uh, represented. So uh, Alex Marks, who is the photographer who was um, engaged with this task, uh, sort of came and on a regular basis uh, took photographs around inside, outside the building to capture all of these uh, different faces of it. And um, this then becomes a kind of rhythm through the book you'll find in three different places. It's it's one of the first things you encounter after Jenny Moore's introduction. You hit July to October, and then this is just a series of photographs that sort of render some of the quality of light at that point. Then, you know, after uh, an essay, then you get to December to January. And then after another essay, you get to March, June. So there's this rhythm in the book that tries to kind of speak to um, some of the phenomenal, perceptual, uh, experiential dimensions of seeing this thing uh, channel, not just the light, but the seasons and the the sort of the way in which the earth is not only turning, but also tilting, you know, very, very subtly calibrated kind of um, uh, um, experience that it offers. So, yeah, that's why um, that's why that's in the book that way. And, and the hope is that people will come and not just come see the piece, but come see the piece over, you know, through different um, different um, times of the year. The way the photographs are presented in the book recalls the way that you have to physically move through the piece to see it and experience it, um, that, that there is a processional element, if you will. You mentioned phenomenal uh, perception, and it's important to the piece. 
Um, that's something that's been important to Irwin for, for a long time. How do you think it manifests itself here and what is in some ways, perhaps not literally, but in some ways kind of his ultimate work? Well, uh, that's a great question. It's, um, it is in many ways a, a grand culmination of many ideas that have, as you point out, been sort of uh, close to his heart through, um, throughout his, um, his explorations as an artist since the really the late 1950s into the early 1960s. And this is this question of the um, kind of firsthand experience of, uh, well, perception, you know, and how that is something that is uh, rich and complex and in some sense, you know, exceeds the possibilities of language and other representational forms to encompass it. So what Irwin's been interested in is trying to draw our attention to that richness and try to encourage us not to try to capture it and cordon it off in terms of uh, sort of the clumsy tools of language and so on, but to experience it in, you know, confrontation with uh, pieces like this one in Marfa, where we, uh, we get to, in a sense, kind of see how Irwin himself understood the the potential of that site. Um, as I was saying, he he likes to call this kind of work conditional art. And what that means is that he'll come to a place and try to find out what are the conditions that are already at play there. And he's not talking necessarily about economic conditions, and he's not necessarily talking about political conditions. He's talking about kind of uh, perceptual conditions, what kinds of things are happening that are uh, uh, um, worth kind of zeroing in on. And in the case of this ruin, it was, as I, as, as I said, this kind of channeling of the sky and the way that sky comes in low, as he likes to say, and it kind of becomes, uh, uh, storms come rolling through all kinds of stuff come through. And so that this building is, is in, drawing our attention to that. For you, what are the most prominent or most significant art historical roots of the piece? Well, um, that question, and I'm going to channel Irwin here a bit, that question already presupposes a certain answer, which is that there will be art historical roots to this piece. <laughs> and I think Irwin would stop you right there, although I can't speak for him. But I think he'd say that's, that's not the kind of thing he'd want you to be thinking about. He'd say this doesn't have necessarily art historical roots. If we're thinking about art historical references as we enter into this space, we're going to be going off onto a series of cultural references, a series of historical references, comparisons with this and other kinds of art that we may have seen. And we're not going to be kind of in that moment of just feeling it for what it is. Um, so without wanting to be too peevish about it or too much devil's advocate, I think that I think that for Irwin to at least get sort of his philosophy out front, he would want you to be thinking, you know, what kind of perceptual experiences are, is this calling to mind? What kind of, uh, uh, and, and then when I walk back out, out of this structure, I'm back outside and, and then I'll go into other structures and light will be coming in through those windows and things too. And the idea is that what we can do is begin to um, become essentially more in tune with that and uh, 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 think uh, a bit more about the possibility of this sort of the the spaces we live in and the world we build uh, ways to to make it more enjoyable somehow 
Now, it doesn't mean that there are no art historical associations, but I feel like I, I need to say that first. I think that, that you know, Erwin is, is very much part of a, of a generation where uh, there were some shared interests, and those shared interests were in many ways about trying to um, foreground the idea of feeling and uh, direct perceptual encounter. This is something that um, Donald Judd, for instance, was quite interested in. It's not necessarily a precedent for Irwin, but we could think of him as a fellow traveler, a kind of a person working on adjacent ideas that uh, resonate with Irwin. And those ideas can be seen elsewhere at the Chinati Foundation, out in the field with the concrete, uh, the, the concrete structures that um, Judd built, where there too you find light kind of uh, creating these etched uh, sort of shadow shapes and, and, and so forth. And so as you walk through uh, the field, which is not far away from where the urban uh, building is, you find these, uh, these resonances and the sense of a kind of a conversation perhaps happening between them. The piece to which you refer is 15 Untitled Works in Concrete from 1980 to 84. For me, when I when I go through um, the Irwin at Chinati, which I've had the pleasure of doing a couple on a couple different visits now, I can't stop thinking about John McLaughlin. Um, it is inside out, top to bottom, um, like being in a McLaughlin painting. I can't. Um, I, I find the reference so direct. Um, it's it's almost kind of like a prompting of total recall of, 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 of McLaughlin paintings for me. The other work I think of when I'm in the Irwin and I'm, you know, maybe this is just the inevitability of context, but it's Judd's hundred untitled in milled aluminum, which is, you know, a couple hundred yards away, hundred untitled in milled aluminum uh, receives light and color in a very specific thrilling different way throughout the course of the day. Um, the light comes in into 100 Untitled uh, through the sides of the reconstructed uh, artillery sheds there at, at Fort T.A. Russell. This is all a long way of, 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 of getting to ask, do you think Irwin was thinking of, intentionally or unintentionally, um, 100 Untitled in, in milled aluminum? That's um, another wonderful question. I I have not heard Irwin speak specifically about um, having been prompted by that, although I do know that he has said very clearly that he was trying to think about uh, this context as he was formulating his response. It wasn't just a kind of private uh, aesthetic response to that that ruined building that he was invited to to consider. It was also thinking about the broader context of the Chinati Foundation and the work there. And I, I think that, that those pieces you refer to, that one extended piece with all of those elements, the aluminum pieces, is a wonderful kind of, uh, uh, you know, another fellow traveler with uh, what Irwin is trying to accomplish in uh, his piece. I think the thing that is is quite telling is that at the Chinati Foundation, there are really only two works that they have regularly sort of morning viewings or evening viewings of, and those would be those aluminum pieces and Irwin's uh, new piece there. And that's because they're so, as you said, sensitively attuned to uh, the light in the environment around them. They are constantly always 
interacting with that, they become visible to us uh, in various ways because of the various sort of the, the shifting, changing light happening around. And what's quite telling, I think, is that n the Irwin and the Judds are never off, as it were. They're, they're always on, meaning that at any time you go look at them, they, they're, they're operating, they're channeling light. Now, at nighttime, obviously, the light's different. It's moonlight, but that also is light, and that's part, that, that's as much a kind of thing that's happening as during the day when you have the daylight. If, however, you go to the Flavens, and there are a series of Flavin installations at the Chinati Foundation, they need to turn them on for you to get sort of the impact of them. There And this is in no way a kind of a judgment for or against. It's a simply an interesting difference that the Flavins are on or off, but the Judds and the Irwin are always on, if, 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 if that makes sense. And I think that's just a slight kind of difference of intention when you look at the different artists that in one place shows an overlap between Judd and Irwin, and then a difference with 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 uh, Flavin, and then of course you could find other places where Flavin overlaps with Irwin, his interest in the fluorescent tubes, and so on, or vice versa with Judd. But I think that the point you make is is well taken. That there is a clear dialogue happening across the Chinati Foundation between the work of some of these uh, of some of these artists. Also, there are lots of binaries within the Flavin on off. Mm -hmm being one of them you mentioned, and within the Irwin, uh, really all of the Judds at Chinati, um, at least that are on permanent view at Chinati, um, they are very binary resistant. Matthew Sims, thanks. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.